the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect upon the tragedy that's still unfolding in Miami. And then how do we prepare our hearts for tragedy and how can the church do better with those who are hurting? We're going to talk to author and pastor Eric Tonjes here on The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey, we're feeling very Monday-ish today, aren't we? It's a yeah, very Monday Monday. We have Monday. low energy. We're both tired, but we're we're here for you. We're gonna we're, we're gonna here power for you. Through. Yeah, we are. This is for you, common gooders. It's been a good weekend, although lots of rain. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but Aubrey, I thought it important. We didn't get the chance last week mm-hmm. because it, the story was still unfolding, right? Uh, and in many ways, it is still unfolding. But there is some, I would say, some finality to it a little bit, and that is just that. What I would call a random tragedy, horrible tragedy uh, in Miami, in the Miami area uh, of that collapse of the condo building. Uh, And and, uh, you probably saw the video footage of it from like some nearby security cameras where people were just in bed and and this half of a condo building just collapsed. collapsed. And currently they have uh, the death toll at last that I saw is at nine. Right. And 150 people still unaccounted for. That's so we're assuming that number is going to go up. Right. That's the real part of the story. Let's listen to just some audio that catches us up on some of what's going on down there. A painstaking search in a tower turned pile of rubble where more than 150 people are still unaccounted for turned even more deadly. We've recovered eight more victims on site, so I am confirming today that the death toll is at nine. The search and rescue effort non-stop, with hundreds on standby, and now global reinforcements. Israeli teams arriving on site this morning to work alongside FEMA specialists. Have you encountered any signs of life? Unfortunately, we have not. We have heard taps. We have heard falling. We have heard twisting metal. We hear sounds all the time. The pile so unstable, crews are now digging a more than 100-foot trench beneath the rubble, hoping to find survivors and give answers to those growing more desperate by the day. And so, Aubrey, I've been following this story uh, like many people since it came out. And I think what I'm struggling with as I watch it is just the randomness of it. Because yes, right. there, there are reasons. They're starting to talk about a 2018 um you know, inspector report that talked about um, struck, some structural d- some damage. real structural yeah. damage, real cracks. But let's be honest, most buildings, maybe to not that level, but are going to show wear and tear and issues. Sure. Yeah. You just never expect something like this to happen. I can't imagine the loved ones right now trying to deal with like, wait, I, I lost my loved one, presumably. Right. Because... Uh, their building just collapsed no, in the middle of the it's night. It's sort of unspeakable and unheard of, and it's such a horrific. Tra- it, it, you know, you think about sometimes like the sinkhole tragedies that happen in yes. Florida too, where it's so inexplicable. And of course, 
structural damage, you know, that is explainable, but it's just shocking. I think we don't expect that to happen, especially in a big city like Miami. Uh, I, I'm assuming a very popular condominium type yeah. place, it, you know, right in the heart of the city. And it, it is, I mean, obviously our hearts are very heavy and I know the community there, their hearts are very heavy as they wait the news. That to me feels like so devastating to have yes. to live in that kind of tension, wondering what's going on. Yeah, on a little bit of a smaller scale, to watch the coverage brings back memories of 9-11, right? Yeah, like, certainly. Not to just see a building go down, but to see this pile of rubble and people heartbreakingly putting up posters yeah. of like, have you seen these uh, people? Right. Uh, so I, I do want to spin this other than to say... Uh, you know what, our, our thoughts and our prayers yes. and, and everything just as you watch that news coverage. But Aubrey, I, I've also tried to go like, OK, what what's the not the takeaway? That sounds way too pastor speak. Mm-hmm. But like, what do you what do we do with this? And I think what yeah. I really go back to and I would love to hear your thoughts on is uh, it's yet another reminder of kind of the randomness of life mm. like this. We all assume that we've got a good 85 years in right, us and right. here we go right. and I'm going to you know, live out my days and then I'm going to go to sleep one day and not wake up. And yeah. we are going to talk to a pastor by the name of Eric Tonjes coming up next who's going to talk to us about the tragedy of his wife dying mm-hmm. young and kind of how does he process that. And, yeah. and he's done some writing on that. But that that's what I keep going back to as I watch this uh, unfolding in, in the story in Florida is just the randomness of it all. And then, you you know, I don't want to be too dark here to start a Monday, but I will be. You know, you you watch news coverage of a of a random shooting in, exactly. in Chicago yeah. over the over yeah. the weekend yes. and some bystander dying. Yeah. Are you yeah. we, we know these stories pop up every day, multiple yeah. times. But I don't know. How do you deal or how would you help people uh, who struggle with just the what? That's just so random. I don't even know how to get my mind around it. I You know, it, one, it's awful. And I do think it can; these kinds of things can bring up questions of God and questions of God's goodness and questions about just suffering and why it happens. And I think the reality is there are tragedies and losses that are just inexplicable. Mm-hmm. And that's just true, period. And I think any, in, any instinct to try to like make sense of it mm-hmm. is probably not a healthy instinct. Yeah. I think these are the moments when we have to go, Lord, I don't understand. There's evil in this world. There's brokenness in this world. There's corruption in this world. There's system failure in this world that makes no sense except to say, like, there's sin and there's evil, period. Yeah. And then I think you what what becomes tricky is you can't blame God because mm-hmm. we know God is not the author of evil. God does not bring death. Like, those things are not from God. And so then the question, I guess, is just to go, okay, Lord, I'm going to hold both things at once. Right. I believe you're good. I believe you're merciful. I believe this breaks your heart in Miami right now. I believe your presence is in Miami right now, bringing comfort beyond what I can imagine. And yet, this thing is terrible. That's right. So, God, I'm going to hold both things at once and just present them to you and ask you to do what only you can do. Because otherwise, we just can't, you, you can't really, you can't make sense of things that are nonsensical. That's right. You know? That's right. I appreciate you kind of holding that tension because one thing that, Christians and churches tend to do that is absolutely not helpful in times like this is try to explain everything right. and put a bow on everything right. that goes, you know, we've all heard crazy stuff like, oh, God must have just been wanting those people with it. You know, and you're like, what? How? Yeah. Or yeah. um or even to even like God is punishing people. That yes. is a, a takes a hot take. And that's not 
That's not helpful. That's not right. That's right. That's right. And so I think we have to fight that urge in individual tragedies, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody in your church who who has, you know, loses a kid yeah. or has cancer or something yeah. saying, oh, you know, trying to explain it for them. God that, wanted another angel with that. We talk about this a lot. I think yes, our tendency yes. is to try to balance the scales of people's grief mm. because that makes us feel better and helps us manage it. It's not our job to balance the scales of grief for another right. person. That's it is right. our job literally to like get on the scale and sit with them. And that's mm. it. And pray with them and be with them and bring them meals. And like churches I know in Miami are stepping into this situation, bringing water and food and prayer. That's our job. Our job is not to try to make an explanation for yeah. what God has done or hasn't done. Yeah, I know? think about in my own neighborhood where our church is. Last week, there was a random tornado. Right. And right. there wasn't loss of life, but there was a loss of life. And you're like, well, what must that family be feeling yeah. right now? Of all the places. That, yeah. And so there is randomness. God is still good and in control, like you said. Yes. But these things do happen mm-hmm. in kind of the already not yet brokenness of our world. That's and it's right. a tension that we have to live in. And I really like that imagery you give. Like, it's our job to sit on the scales, to be with people, to mm-hmm. say with them, I don't really know what to tell you right now, but I'm going to be here with yeah. you. So uh, be praying for the people down in Miami and also allow it to cause you to wrestle yep. with how do we um, how do we get our minds around this? Yeah. Where's God fit into that? Yeah. Well, speaking of that, we're excited to be joined next by a writer, musician, and a pastor. His name is Eric Tonjes. And Eric, we're going to continue talking to him about kind of grief and tragedy. He lost his wife. Uh, his wife passed away uh, at a very young age. And now he's a single dad and never expected it, leading the church, trying to mm-hmm. wrestle with this. And he's done some really honest writing about this. So we're excited to talk to Eric Tonjes next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a writer, musician, and pastor, also the author of a new book called Either Way Will Be All Right, An Honest Exploration of God in Our Grief. His name is Eric Tunges. Eric, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. Eric, before we jump into the book and other stuff, why uh, why don't you help our audience get to know you a little bit? Why don't you tell us your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up uh, in Nebraska, actually, which is a state that for most people around here, I think they think of, if they think of it at all as that long, very flat place you drive through towards Colorado. But I <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, uh, grew up there and met my uh, future wife, Elizabeth, there in college. And then we struck out and lived a few other places, St. Louis, and uh, we live near Rockford uh, now. But... Uh, yeah, got married and then uh, went on that journey of life, had a few kids, and then ended up taking a pastoral call out here in Illinois five and a half years ago. And just as we were getting ready to move, got the initial cancer diagnosis for her. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big kind of world-shaping event, although at that point it was not clear what the diagnosis was going to mean. It was one of those diagnoses where you go through all the treatment, and if it comes back, then... It's, you know, incurable medically, and if it doesn't, then you kind of are hopeful that you're good to go, but uh, we went through the treatment, and then hers came back, and so mm-hmm. then we walked through uh, about a three-year-long season of um, dealing with terminal cancer, and the Lord very kindly gave us more time than we expected, 
but then last year she passed away. Mm, and sorry. Was so, yeah. Oh, so sorry for your loss, Eric. So yeah. out of your journey, you wrote this book, Either Way Will Be All Right, An Honest Exploration of God in Our Grief. And, uh, you know, your wife just passed away in October. So I'm imagining that you were starting to process this book even while uh, she was sick and, and battling cancer. Can you talk to us about just some of the reasons why you felt like it was important to write this story for yourself and then maybe for other people as well? Yeah, so so actually the first draft of this book kind of just existed for myself. Mm. I just like, took a month of study leave and sat down and wrote through everything and kind of trying to do two things, name in a sort of honest way what I was actually feeling as I walked through that process of, um, you know, grieving already and anticipating the, the season still coming, and then also just, you know, trying to sink those roots down into the, the things that are my hope that I believe, um, at the same time, out of that place of grief. And it went through a number of rewrites before it became something that I let other people see. But, but yeah, I mean, in many ways, um, at its heart, it was just me sort of trying to name these things that I know are true, mm. name the, the sadness and the sorrow and the pain, and, and see how those things met in a way that, yeah, I mean, I still, in many ways, think, think through the things that I tried to name there as the places in my heart that I end up having to go as I walk through uh, grief with Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And Eric, uh, I really appreciate you opening up and, and letting us in on, on your story a little bit. I, I wonder what has it been like for you to be a grieving husband and at the same time a young father who you didn't expect to be a single dad uh, having to raise young kids. How have you helped your kids? How, how, just talk to me about what that has all been like for you. Um, I have a number of thoughts about that having had to walk through it. So one of the things, so, so we were in a situation where we had a lot of forewarning. I think it's a lot harder for kids when they face sudden traumatic mm-hmm. kind of loss that, that they're not able to process ahead of time. But I also think that sometimes parents just hide the, from their kids the, mm-hmm. the oncoming stuff that yeah. they don't want to watch things through his pain or whatever. But we got very wise counsel early on and we're very open with our kids from the start. So when Elizabeth first had cancer, we, we let them kind of ask the questions, but we always fully answered them. So they understood that if their mom's cancer came back after the, you know, the first time she had it, that then it would mean that she would probably die from it. Mm. And then when it came back, we kind of, again, we, we gave them the space. It took a couple of weeks, but then they kind of asked the questions. And so we explained to them, yeah, you know, how things would probably proceed and that reality. The biggest things throughout that process, I think, for kids are one, just, to recognize that, I mean, you still want your kids not to hurt, but yeah. there's things, there's times in life that they're just going to get hurt. And yeah. what you have to do is be honest with them and shepherd them through that, point them to Jesus in the middle of that rather than protect them. Um, and then two, you have to be someone they can trust. Because mm. the big thing for my kids, I feel like, is that they, because of how we conducted it, they both felt like they could trust that there was a plan, which is big for kids to feel secure, right? Like, you know, the... Yeah, that tomorrow's still going to come and we're right. still going to have a home and a family and, you know, a good dad will love us and stuff. And two, they need to be able to trust you that you're not going to lie to them about life mm. because there's all sorts of insecurities kids feel when they have to confront death, right? Wow, yeah. And so, yeah. Mm. Oh, wow, Eric, what a journey that you're on right now. Um, one of the things that I know you talk about in the book is that God does meet us in our grief, but not always in ways we expect or not always in ways we even want. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, 
what, what I really meant there is this reality that I feel like I sort of know God better and some of us feel closer and a much more vivid intimacy, I think, with him than I did six, seven, ten years ago in different ways in life as I've had to face different griefs and hard things and then especially stuff with Elizabeth. But it's not always easier ways. There are ways that I feel like I understand him less. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and moments where I just feel like it's kind of like, you're the Lord and I'm going to, you know, just you're going to do what you will and you're with me in this and, you know, and will carry me through it. But, um, but yeah, I don't think I haven't figured out as much mm-hmm. as I used to. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are some of the ways that you feel like you know him better? What What are some things that you understand God having gone through this grief and uh, now coming out or not coming out, but continuing the process? How are some ways you know God better? Yeah, let me name two. One is that I think that I've had to learn, and this really started 10 years ago. We had a hard season of health difficulties with our oldest child when we were in the hospital for like five months with her, mm. which was not as extreme as stuff with Elizabeth, but was definitely... I think started me processing through it. And that season started really a 10 year journey. And Elizabeth came to continue to just figuring out what it actually means on a gut level to believe that God loves me, um, which would be a whole other discussion. Yeah. But I think that like some people struggle with whether God's in control and big, some people struggle with whether God is kind and actually loves them mm, and yeah. you know, yeah. cherishes them. Yeah. And I'm definitely the latter sort of person. And so I feel like I've been discovering that. And then I also feel like I've just been learning in some sense to recognize, maybe especially the last the last season since last year of single parenting and being a widower, that there is a sort of, like Jesus is enough, not in a way that robs the, the goodness from things like a spouse, but being forced to kind of fall back on him and lose one of my main supports, and at times one of my main crutches mm-hmm. right, in my life, <laughs> sure. in life has just made me recognize that there is, yeah, it's not it's not enough to make everything easy and happy all the time, but it's enough to support and sustain me. That's good. Again, that is Eric Tungis. He is writer, musician, and pastor. He's author of a new book called Either Way Will Be All Right, An Honest Exploration of God in Our Grief. And Eric, there's people listening right now going through all sorts of tragedies and all sorts of hard time. Uh, what would you say to the person who's listening right now who's like, nope, I'm throwing in the towel. Uh, God, I, I can't continue to follow God. Stuff's too hard, uh, or I can't make sense of it. What would you say to that person who's kind of considering throwing their faith away over the uh, hard times they're going through right now? Yeah, so first of all, I would say that I get it. <laughs> I mean, part of what's hard on a radio interview talking to a person like that is that what I want to do first and foremost is just kind of give them a hug. Mm-hmm. with them and hear their story, right? Yeah. yeah. Because because before you say anything to their pain, you need to just validate the reality that that's painful. And yeah. the scripture has no problem very honestly just acknowledging the painfulness of hard things. That said, I think I would say two things to that person um, then coming out of that. One would be just, and this is, this is just, if I can say this as someone who's walked through that valley, not as some, you know, like high above it, like someone who's felt those days yeah. of frustration and yeah. stuff, there is a sense of just, it's not like throwing in the towel. It might feel good, cathartic in the moment, but it's not actually giving you anywhere helpful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I always think about Peter and, uh, you know, Jesus, are you going to leave me too? And, you know, he's like, where else should we go? You the words of life, right? Yeah. That, um, that, that what you're turning your back on in that moment as much as it's a God who you feel hurt by in some ways, is also really the only hope that you have of healing and seeing some sort mm. of redemption for mm-hmm. out of that. And, um, yeah, and so I would just encourage you to wrestle with that and then out of that to wrestle with 
God. I think a lot about that image, right? You know, Israel means wrestles with God. Right. Uh, you know, coming from Jacob, who's renamed that. And in my mind, that idea of wrestling with God is really a way of saying that you don't, you don't ignore the, the hurt, you don't, you don't not struggle, but you kind of do so, instead of turning your back and walking away, you do so like holding on to God. I mean, it's Jacob in that dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. you know, saying, I'm not going to release you until you bless me. That's right. And he leaves that place, right, with a, a limp and with a blessing. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would just encourage someone in that place to say, like, keep struggling, wrestling, processing the pain, all of that, but what if you do that while grasping unto God mm-hmm. and, you know, and wrestling with him rather than while walking away from him? Yeah, that's such a, that's such a good word for people. Eric, on your website, erictunges.com, T-O-N-J-E-S.com, you recently wrote about challenging the church about single parents. You've been a single dad now for eight months, and one of the things that you say, just being very blunt, is uh, churches don't do well at this. Brian and I are both pastors. I know you're a pastor as well. So um, what can churches do better? How can churches do a better job of loving single parents? Yeah, again, that could be, maybe that will be a whole other book someday. Um, <laughs> part of that blog post really came out of, it's been interesting as I suddenly stepped into this new kind of place in life, yeah. and kind of done so publicly, a lot of people who are single parents have reached out to me, Wow, um, just from different connections I have, initially just often and kind of encouraged me in it, but then I've gotten to hear kind of their stories, because I'm in this weird in-between place for a lot of reasons, because I do have more agency than a lot of them in the mm-hmm. church. But, um, but I am kind of in the same place. So let me give a couple of thoughts. The single biggest one, I think, is that single parents need to be intentionally brought into the relational network of the church as a whole hmm. and not just shunted off into ministries for them. Because I think that's what the church tends to do is with, with, with all of the people that I think of as like more challenging people, it tends to just say, like, well, we'll just put them in rooms with each other so that they can help each other so that we don't have to. Yeah. But the truth is, you know, like, like, I feel the tension, even with our old couple friends, right? That, like, there's sort of a sacrifice they have to make to hang out with me. Wow. Because, you know, mm-hmm. sub, you know, because suddenly one of them, you know, like, because often it would be like my wife was friends with the wife and I was friends with the husband, and suddenly they're missing out on that. Mm. It's just little things like that that I think make it a little harder for people, but that just tragically then leave those people cut off from the community of the church. Wow. And so I would just say really intentionally, relationally including them. Mm-hmm. And then also not being dumb. That would be a lot of discussion. I mean, there are a lot of comments and, um, and ideas that, that people have shared with me that they've been told in single parenthood that are really hurtful in various ways that devalue their place, um, mm. especially single moms, I feel like. I mean, that weird place is a single dad where, like, if my kids have clothes on, I'm like, you know, a miracle worker. That's right. People are yeah. like, you're especially, amazing, yeah. right? Especially single mothers tend to, you know, like, if anything isn't perfect, they look down on Whereas I would just say, you know, like, they're doing the work of two people. Like, they should be applauded instead of as exemplary parents. Yeah. And, um, and then there's all sorts of things about, um, about vulnerability and, um, and vulnerability to, you know, being hurt in certain ways and stuff like that. That you just really need to be mindful of protecting yeah. people in those places. That's good, Eric. I wonder what's it been like, as we said, Aubrey and I are both pastors. Uh, what's it been like pastoring through this like that that has to have been really hard i'm just curious what's it been like to still lead a church and be a pastor through all of this so that's a hard question to answer because in some ways i got eased into it i feel Hmm. like because that's a good point you know because of the kind of journey with cancer 
it wasn't like I was at the end point five years ago when I stepped in at this church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have been blessed with a community of people that are very just practically good at loving and supporting and caring for us, which I've been really grateful for. But I would say that the biggest blessing of it has been that I'm able to sort of meet with people in the middle of hard situations and uh, I just not get it fully, right? Because everyone's suffering is unique, but, but, but be able to walk with them as a fellow sufferer. I mean, there's something weird. I'm, I mean, I'm not, the, I'm in my thirties still, right? Yeah. yeah. And to sit down with some 75 year old widow, <laughs> yeah. you could just be like, you know, I know you understand what I'm going through. Like there's a sort of blessedness to be able to, to walk with them in that. There are challenges too. I've had to really just lean on the grace of Jesus because there's ways in grief that your capacities are just lower, you know, mm-hmm. just your energy level, your, your relational capacities are lower. And so you, you try to be faithful, but you just recognize that I can't do all the stuff that I would if I was, um, yeah, if I was, didn't have this limp, didn't have this mm-hmm. yeah. heavy heaviness. And so just, I've had to really lean on, you know, Jesus is the one I'm not, I'm not the Christ. He's the, he's the minister ultimately. And I'm just trying to serve him. Oh, it's so good. Eric, so you're writing, you're making music. Obviously, you have this new book out. Either way, we'll be all right. An honest exploration of God in our grief. Where can people find and follow you? Yeah, all the social media stuff under my name. Uh, I try to share things. And then also, you mentioned I have a website, which is just my name. And then picking up the book is a good place for people to hear more. And then I also co-host a podcast called Simply Faithful with a friend of mine who's a church planter down in Phoenix. Oh, that's great. Again, that book is Either Way Will Be All Right, An Honest Exploration of God in Our Grief. Again, his name is Eric Tungis. We'd encourage you, can't encourage you enough to go pick up that book. Eric, this has been wonderful. Thanks for your honesty. Just thanks thanks for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Monday. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. You found this cool article at Patheos yeah. about the pandemic, post-pandemic pastor. Before we get into that, you and Kevin, he had another triathlon this yeah, week, this Ironman. Yeah, this was an Ironman, which is essentially a long triathlon. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm gonna, I can't make up the numbers, but he rode a bike forever. He, he ran forever. And you watched forever. And I watched forever with my three kids. He did fantastic. The, um, we had terrible weather. It mm-hmm. was in uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, and they did have to cancel the swim portion of the race, which my husband is such a sort of adventure athlete. I know already he's thinking about, oh, God, that feels incomplete. Now I'm going to have yes. to do another one. So I was like, okay, I'll support you if it's in Hawaii. Like, <laughs> let's find that Ironman or the Florida Ironman. I don't need to go back to Michigan. Ironman. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, really good. He did great. We had a blast. We were there with a couple of friends who the other husband was doing it with Kevin. And we had a, it was fun. They did good. well. It was awesome. Okay, how was your weekend? Good. Another baseball tournament. I know we're coming to the end of the season. I love these tournaments. I know. This is like your thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're not great for our bank account, but my son (laughs) has a blast at these with the team. Like, it's so fun. They, you for you just remember that they're thirteen year olds because like they lost a game on Saturday to the team that ended up winning the whole (gasps) tournament. Oh, wow. No, no, this was on 
Thursday. They okay. lost this game. Okay. To a team that won this. It was a huge tournament. This yeah. team had won the whole thing from Kansas or something. And, you know, you think our kids didn't play well. You think they would have been bummed. And they go back to the hotel. They're all kind of bummed. Yeah. This didn't eliminate them. They ended up. Okay. That was kind of pool gotcha. play. Gotcha. Gotcha. And like a half hour later, they're swimming. They're playing spike ball in the. In <laughs> they're the, like telling fart jokes. Yeah, they're, they're fine. They're yeah. And you're like, oh, they're 13. One of the moms was super generous on like Friday and like took all uh, 10, I think it was at that point, 10 kids, 11 kids, took all of them to like a trampoline no park. Way. And paid for, we all sent oh. money with our kids, paid for wow. the whole thing. And like it was like Jackson told me, they didn't play great. Like they didn't have a yeah. really quote unquote successful weekend. He was but, like, Dad, this was probably my favorite tournament of the weekend of the year because we just got to hang out a lot and play. So love that. Uh, it was really That's fun. I got cool. to hang out with a lot of the parents, especially the dads. Yeah. And it, was, it was just cool. It love was a that. fun weekend. So It'll be good again, for, especially for our bank account when baseball season kind of ends. <laughs> but uh, I do, and you just enjoy watching your kid play and, and doing something he well. loves. I think that's what's yeah, so cool. Yeah, so it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. Fantastic. So it was just it was just Jay and I, Jackson and I, this weekend. But uh, this past weekend, so it was fun. Okay, but when you and I aren't doing triathlon, Ironman, uh, and baseball, and baseball yeah. we actually pastor churches. <laughs> we actually do that. And we actually have weekend jobs, and we have pastor churches. And at Pathios, you were telling me that you found this to be pretty interesting. It's just a uh, a guy by the name of Tom uh, Sigamura mm-hmm. wrote to the post-pandemic pastor. He literally writes a letter, yeah. dear pastor, myself included, and it kind of turns into a list. Uh, what do we do right now as pastors? Why don't you get us into it? Also, tell us why'd you why'd you kind of find this fascinating? Yeah, what I liked about it is I think it's not a word just for pastors. It's for any of us coming out of the po- the pandemic that are feeling maybe weary, exhausted, going into this summer like, okay, it's a new normal. But also things have changed, you know, yeah. so it's just a good encouraging word. Let me just read some of it. It's a list. So we'll just kind of go through the list here. And then, Brian, you can actually respond if you want to. But he says, dear pastor, myself included, breathe, breathe deeply. <laughs> You've just completed a marathon, which I like this part. You thought would only be a 5K when you laced up your that's shoes. Awesome. And that's so, so true. true. When we started the pandemic, pastors, I know we were thinking, Ah, uh, maybe we'll be online for two or three weeks max. And suddenly here we are a year later and churches are just reopening. Then he basically says, don't give up. And uh, Brian and I have talked about on the common good before. A lot of pastors have walked away That's from right. the pastor during the season. He says, be patient. Your church needs time to get back to normal. Watch your health. <laughs> Check your sleep, diet, exercise, hydration. Feed your soul with scripture, prayer, silence and solitude. Spend time with God. Resist the temptation to compare your church with Mm. others. I mean, that's a good word all the time, really. Trust and train your small group leaders. Also remember to say no. Your role is not to carry the entire church, but to equip members to carry one another. Revitalize. I like this one. Ask God what new things he's doing and help other pastors. So, Brian, Mm. do any of those stand out to you? Uh by any, I think all of right. them, but I really appreciate number one being be patient because mm. right now it does feel like uh, it's a natural to go. Everything should be normal now, right? We took the masks yeah. off. We made them optional. We, you know, people should be back. Where are they? And why don't why don't things feel like they did on March 1st of 2020 yeah. before we had to close yeah. everything down? Yeah. Where are people? And then it comes with that next question. And is it ever going to be normal again? Mm-hmm. Are they ever coming back? Uh, and, and I think his word here, be patient. There might not be normal. You might not get back to March 1st right. of 2020. Right. Uh, but that doesn't 
mean that that your church is going to have to close the doors or that people like God's not going to do something. I think this idea of patience, I think we all felt like we were being patient for the last 16 months. Definitely. But now it's not. Now it's like, all right, good. Now I don't have to be patient. Right Now we got to like, go, 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 go. Yeah. And I think this word to be patient is a a really important one. I kind of appreciate the watch your health um, piece of advice here, because I, I would say during the pandemic, I just I think a lot of us got in bad habits. Like part of it was just emotional eating or even emotional drinking and you're kind of just like I don't know, you're coping as best you can and now it's like, okay, you need to do what you need to do to replenish your strength. I know Kevin and I got in weird sleep habits, yeah. like so sleeping regularly, exercising again, drinking a lot of water, and then taking time to recuperate. Here he says your church and your family need you. I that's think right. that's a really good word. Yeah, and this whole <laughs> This goes even beyond the pandemic, the resisting of the temptation to compare <laughs> yeah. your church with others. Yeah. That idea of comparison, uh, I don't know if people who don't lead in churches fully grasp how much of a struggle that is for pastors. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's not what is God doing in my church. It's what is my church doing that other churches aren't? Mm-hmm. Is my church bigger than the other? Are we the cool church in town? <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. and, and I think when you are, Man, your 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 pride can get really high. You could go, okay, look at us, we're killing it. But when the flip side is true, it could be really demoralizing. Mm. It could be God can be doing cool stuff in your church, but it seems like the energy and the people are all at that other yeah, church, and yeah. you're just like. And now coming out of COVID, it's like we're all back at the starting line again. Totally. Before you know, when you guys started your church, you were like the only one at the starting line. Other yeah. people, now we're all at the starting line, and the gun goes off, and it's like, oh, they're running faster. They're doing. Uh, they're winning. I think. And I that's think a hard too, one. the reality is right now. I I know we're hearing this. I'm assuming you are too. You're hearing people that were part of your church before the pandemic are now at someone else's church, right. and that's a Okay, God moves people along, and I do think there was a season in the pandemic where people got to evaluate like where God was calling them to church, but it doesn't feel good as a church leader. Like you're like, oh, what what did they do right that we didn't do, or why are you know? So that's you you can't as a church leader you can't get in that game. You Uh, just have to like trust (laughs) who God has given you to shepherd and shepherd them as best as you can faithfully before the Lord. Yeah, the truth is, most of us pastors think it's okay for people to re-examine where they're going to church if they end up at ours, not if they leave ours. (laughs) (laughs) It's usually, no, God's really, oh, I see God's doing a new work and you welcome. Welcome. He's calling you to our church? Okay, great. Not God's doing doing a new work and you go and be blessed. It's usually the way it works. And as we close this one, I do think that other one about revitalizing, just asking questions Uh, all the way down this is our churches have all been kind of torn to the foundations mm-hmm. and just going, all right, what's going to what are we coming back with yeah. and what aren't we? So I found that to be interesting. Coming up next, uh, there is a podcast through Christianity Today that even some of our non-churched friends are talking yes. about focusing on Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll. And how did it all implode so quickly? You and I both listened uh, to episode one, and we're quickly texting each other, going, "This is we have to talk about this." Yeah. So Aubrey and I are going to talk about that next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're breaking down the new Christianity Today podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and we're asking what counts as plagiarism in a pastor sermon. You're listening to the Common Good.
Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. I am Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host Brian Fromm, who was gone a couple days last week, but I he's was. back, and so it's good to have you back again, Brian, on this lovely, dreary, <laughs> exhausting out the window, like, Monday that we're having. It's not Monday, but we're trying to make it lovely for you. Just what's amazing is that it hasn't rained all summer. <laughs> and now all it does is rain. All it for like does the last is rain. Days. Yeah, like, okay, and, and like tornadoes and thunderstorms. So like, oh, where's summer? What we, happened? We spread these out through a couple months yeah. instead of like none, and then that's all we do. Right. So. Brian, so you and I got really excited when mm-hmm. we heard about the Christianity Today Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, and then we both listened to it, and we were like, this is killer. Yeah, it th- is so good. Can you... T- Talk to us for people who don't understand why this is a podcast. Can you kind of fill people in on that? Absolutely. Because I do feel like, like you said, this actually feels like uh, with all the talk going on about it, and if you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to go do so. And we're going to continue talking about this in the coming weeks as it unfolds. I, I would say that this is almost an evangelical cultural touch point here. Yes. I think this is good. People it's are going to look back on this podcast and say that was super important for various reasons. Mars Hill in the last decade, Mark Driscoll leads Mars Hill Church, um, led, sorry, Mars Hill Church. I would say at about like the 2010 mm-hmm. time and time. This was as big and influential a church and a pastor as there was in all of evangelicalism. As there had been, that's right. Yeah, he was. It was the new way of doing church. Yeah. It was the edgy. It was this and that. Uh, and Mark Driscoll had a huge voice. I told you off air, I was listening to him every week. Like, yeah. I was listening yeah. to his uh, to his sermons. Mark Driscoll then, the whole church imploded. Yeah. Uh, and, and here's what's fascinating. It didn't implode in the ways that we think. Sexual sin, financial stuff. It imploded by just... Uh, really bad leadership yeah. and really uh, unstable foundation. And mm-hmm. so he got caught plagiarism, but he was just a jerk. And so yeah. he got caught with this stuff. He he gets let go and the church imploded within a month. Which is unbelievable. And if you can understand that, like, like that's like, think of some of the biggest churches around you. Pastor gets pulled out. And with a month, the church no longer exists. The church just closes its doors and is done. Right. And so this podcast is asking the question. It's not just telling the story. It's asking the question, what killed Mars Hill? Yeah. Like, yeah. how did this happen? Uh, and it was uh, unbelievably produced. And like, it's just a good podcast. Uh, agreed. Yeah. It's and, just well, well made. And then, especially for those of us that kind of in the church world who knew of this stuff, mm-hmm. it's sobering and it's yeah. enlightening. You hear Mark things Mark Driscoll said back there, some other things. It's just a, uh, it's, it's well worth, you got to listen to this. We actually have a little few moments of audio that we wanted you to hear. The first is um, actually Mark Driscoll himself talking about if people aren't on the bus, meaning if they aren't sort of like for the vision of Mars Hill, then we're just going to run them over. So let's go ahead and listen to that. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. This is what we're doing. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off. Because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There are people who will uh, be on the bus. Leaders and helpers and servants. They're awesome. There's also just sometimes nice people who sit on the bus and shut up. Um, they're not helping or hurting. Just let them ride along. Um, you know what I'm saying? But don't look at the nice people. They're just going to sit on the bus and shut their mouth and think, I need you to lead the mission. They're never going to. 
uh, you need to gather a whole new core. I'll, I'll tell you guys what, too. You don't do this just for your church planting or replanting. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. We just took certain guys and rearranged the seats on the bus. Yesterday, we fired two elders for the first time in the history of Mars Hill last night. They're off the bus, under the bus. Um, they were off mission, so now they're unemployed. There you get a sense of the type of leader that Mark Driscoll mm-hmm. was slash mm-hmm. is. I know he's leading a new church now, so that'll be interesting to see. But the man, um, you know, was known for firing elders. And anyone who didn't agree with him, right. he just basically said, well, they're gone. And in one sense, that <laughs> that sort of very clear-cut vision, I think, led to the massive growth, but damaged a lot of people along yeah. the way. I think there's this holding it as a badge of honor. Mm. Like, not only are we going to get people off the bus, we're going to run them over. Like, we're going. There's an arrogance and a narcissism to that that plays through all of this. Quite frankly, it plays to Driscoll's current church as well. Yeah. Uh, th- there's a narcissism to it that is that is really painful to listen to. You know, and it, it, you think about what a pastor is supposed to be, mm-hmm. and of course you go to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. A shepherd, someone who... Now, Jesus, well, I mean, of course, we all know the turning over the tables in the temple story, but that was not the primary mode of operandus for That's Jesus. Right. That was right. a moment that was righteous anger that was not the defining thing about jesus who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross who humbled himself and you know took off his robe and put on a towel and washed people's feet Mm -hmm. and so you hear that kind of language of just like let's run him over that the violence behind it the anger behind it the like hubris behind it is really really sobering like you said there's another clip we wanted to play you paul david tripp um who was, it, it, explain this, he was part of the elder board at Mars Hill or just Kinda, an influential... That, that was one of the problems. There wasn't really a good functioning elder board, but what Mars Hill did was they had a lot of like outside advisors, big pastors. And Paul David Tripp is like, um, he's a pastor and author and he's a really respectable person. Yeah, like this yeah. is somebody, if you're like, this guy's going to speak into your life and your church, you're going to listen to him. Right. Here he is talking about kind of foreseeing the downfall of Mars Hill. This is, without a doubt, the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. In fact, I have said from the beginning, Marsville Church, Mark Driscoll, deals with its sins or it's done. I, I absolutely believe this. It's done. It's over. So again, that's Paul David Tripp just saying, hey, if if this this church is about to implode, like it is coming. And coming. he saw ahead because of the sin that was really running rampant. It was so sober. And that was the one thing that stood out to me was when Paul David Tripp talked there, because he's saying he predicted exactly what's going to happen. And why did he say it? He said, this is a toxic. This is an abusive place. And much of the podcast kind of centers on the fact of like, um, yeah, but but people said, but look at all the amazing fruit mm-hmm. that's happening. Look at what's going on. And I think what we they asked the question, what killed Mars Hill? In many ways, they say it was us. We we yeah. the people in the church and the people who uh, platformed this guy at conferences and listened to the podcast yeah. like myself. Yeah, like that's what did it, because there were moments where especially people close could say this can't keep going. Right. This has to stop. Right. David Paul David Tripp is saying. Guys, I know it looks amazing now, but it's going to implode. You've got to fix this. And nobody said, you know what? We're going to fix it because of what was going on. They were like the hot church, the cool church. Yeah, And, and you it, don't want to stop that momentum. No. Like the church is growing. And, and one of the things that podcast says is there was a lot of transformation that happened there. 
and yet the fallout was so devastating. Absolutely. The leadership example was so devastating. One of the things that I, that stuck out to me was that Mars Hill became such a sort of lightning rod that bloggers could write anything about Driscoll, about Mars Hill, and it was almost like clickbait. Like all of a sudden, That's their right. popularity grew because of just the name of Mars Hill. Yes. And um, yeah, the, I, I think that is the question that they're posing. It's going to be interesting to watch Christianity Today sort of unfold this is how we have created a culture in which a guy like Mark Driscoll can thrive and how do we get better going forward. Absolutely. Well, anyway, you'll hear Brian and I probably talk about that for the next several weeks because we are so interested in the podcast. Again, if you haven't listened to it, it is the rise and fall of Mars Hill available from Christianity Today. You can find out wherever you get your podcast. Really, really fascinating, really worth listening to. Coming up next, stick around because Brian and I are going to be talking about what the new president of the SBC has to say about plagiarism. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are talking about plagiarism and pastoring and the pulpit and how we make sense of this very sticky thing called plagiarism. Um, This kind of has come to the fruition of the social media conversation right now because the brand new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ed Litton, was accused of plagiarizing J.D. Greer, the former... Was J.D. Greer the former pastor of SBC? Or he was... Yes, just finished. Just Just finished, finished, that's right. Um, Accused of plagiarizing one of J.D. Greer's sermons. And, you know, of course, that begs questions of integrity. But then there's a larger conversation taking place about what is plagiarism, especially when it comes to pastoring and preaching. And, you know, how do you draw that line? So, uh, Ed Litton put out a statement... That basically said that some questions arose about a sermon he delivered in January of 2020. So people are now going back a year and a half listening to some of his sermons. Right, right. right. Everyone's everyone's checking him out because he just became president. Um, A sermon on Romans 1 addressing the sin of homosexuality. And there were concerns about similarities with a sermon delivered by J.D. Greer one year earlier. So Mm -hmm. 1999. All right. So what did he have to say, Brian? And what do you think about it? Yeah, it, because people, like you said, went back and said, man, these are pretty similar. And and he did have to say this. He said, listen, I have a preaching team. We get together, uh, which is an interesting kind of insight how he puts his sermons together. We have an eight-person preaching team. They do the study. And as they were doing the study on the Romans 1 passage that he was going to preach on, uh, they came across J.D. Greer's sermon. And what becomes interesting is they reached out to Greer, to Summit, and said, hey, can we use some of this? And so... They got permission uh, in the background yeah. of like um, they got permission to use some of this stuff. Uh, and and so in that sense, it's not plagiarism at all. And he says, out of a commitment to full transparency, I've gone back through all the 46 sermons in this series. Parenthetically, a 46 sermon I series mean, on Romans. On Romans 1. Was it all? No. Surely, maybe maybe the book of Romans. Yeah, hopefully. Well, <laughs> that would be a lot of Romans that's 1. a lot. <laughs> He says, I've located in some places similar illustrations, quotes, or points of application. Uh, one shares the same title, one a similar outline. And so he's basically trying to, he talks about using a story from Paul David Tripp. Uh, and so really, Aubrey, I think the question comes back to, I think most people go, okay, uh, you know what? He he reached out to Greer. This wasn't blatant He really plagiarism. did his due diligence, yeah. 
But the quest, the the conversation has now transformed to when you're preparing a sermon, especially in this day and age yeah. that we live in yeah. of the internet and podcasts yeah. and books and all this stuff. Uh, shouldn't we be? And I wonder how much you do. You do a lot of speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it look like to take someone else's ideas and just? Use them, right? Versus going, you know what? I was reading Aubrey Sampson's book, uh, The Louder Song, mm-hmm. and I was really, really uh, impressed by what she said about this. Let me read to you what she mm-hmm. said here. So, where is it where you need to attribute to somebody yeah. else? Because that's really where Litton, if he did anything wrong in this, he just didn't say. He didn't go. You know what? I was talking to JD Greer. I was listening to a JD Greer sermon on Romans one, and I was yeah. really impressed when he said yeah. this. Yeah. As opposed to just saying it without ever. Say- and now people go, Well, what were you trying to hide? What were you? Right. And I believe him when he's like, listen, I, you know, we put this sermon together. One of the reasons I believe him is because I, I preach most weeks and I know how this goes yes. Yes. where you're, you know, part of sermon prep is listening to other people's mm-hmm. sermons. It's reading, reading commentaries. commentaries. It's, yeah. It's Googling. What did other people say right. about Romans one right. or Romans one right. sermons? And, and it's, and then reading them. And so the question becomes, what does attribution look like? At what point do you say, yeah, you know, I was doing this. uh, I was reading this. I heard this the other day. Mm -hmm. And at what point do you just insert it into your sermon? And I think that's something that pastors wrestle with uh, and that congregants would probably want to know. Like, are you just lifting entire sermons from people? (laughs) What do you want to do? And so I think this kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit on the... um, the craftsmanship of putting sermons together. Right. I think it's a more complicated conversation than people want to sort of admit because, okay, I'll say this. Writing books, you attribute everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you don't even want to get close to plagiarizing. So you're quoting, you're citing, you are constantly aware of like, I have this idea from someone else, therefore they get the credit. But there also is in publishing something called fair use, where Mm. if Generally, there's an idea that someone has maybe put forth. You're talking about it, but you're not necessarily quoting them. A big chunk of your book is not based on that book. Then that's actually acceptable legally Mm. and even ethically in publishing. And so I do think this is a moment in preaching where there are some things that are fair use, like commentaries. But then, of course, if you're just blatantly using someone else's sermon, I think just to say... Like you said, mm-hmm. J.D. Greer preached an awesome sermon on this. It's better than anything I could have done. I'm just going to use some of his yep. points. He gave me permission to do that. I think what people don't realize is a couple of things. There are a lot of pastors who subscribe to services that actually write sermons for them or yes. sermon outlines for them, and they use those. They pay for those. They are allowed to do that. Yes. It's an agreement. But their church probably doesn't know that they're doing that. That's exactly Lots right. of pastors do that because pastors are busy and don't always have time to be in an office for nine hours. How do you hours. feel about that? Um, uh, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I get it. I've never done it. Mm-hmm. I get the, the desire to, especially if you're burnt out and you're tired and yeah. maybe you, what, you're the kind of pastor who would rather spend time with people all week than crafting a sermon. Yeah. I mean, I say go for it, especially if whoever it is that service says you're allowed to. Yeah. I think, I think for the me, hard part, oh, go ahead. I think for me, I do have trouble with it. Because I think the sermon is a major part of what the pastor does, right? In yeah. the local church. Yeah. I think at the very least, there needs to be some open dialogue about, hey, people in my church, I want you to know what I'm doing. Yes. And here's why I'm doing it. Yes. Put, they put together better stuff. Yeah. They do this. And this whole idea of attribution, like the, uh, you know, I've, I have failed at this many times, but I'm going to pat myself on the back for one thing here. Like two weeks ago, 
I found I was reading uh, Philip Reichen's where preach it through Galatians. Mm-hmm. I was in his commentary mm-hmm. reading Reichen's commentary, and he ended with a story that I thought was so powerful. I literally brought the book with yeah. me into the pulpit, yes. and I said, "Here's how I want to end." I was reading this commentary. Yes. Let me read to you. Nobody went. Well, that's what, what I was gonna going to say. On? I you preached. Yeah. yeah, I preached a sermon recently from a book, and I literally went, "Here's the book that this is from. Get it on Amazon. I'm preaching from this," and nobody is ever like. Oh. How dare you? Exactly. I <laughs> you thought know? this was all from yeah. your mind. I right. Think, I think people get it. Now, uh, you know, I, I think when you're, there's probably a pressure that I don't understand being the SBC president yeah. or being at a bigger church. Yeah. If you're constantly quoting J.D. Greer or Tim Keller or right. whatever else. Right. But like you said, I've never had anybody in my church come up to me and be like, why are you just talking about that guy? Yeah. Why do you? Yeah. They, they, I think people get that there's that. I've had people in my church. Uh, I actually had an interesting conversation with somebody in my church one day who was like, I think it should be common practice for pastors just to use other people's sermons. Like, oh, I want to hear the best stuff. I was like, well. The hard part, of, right. That's a conversation about contextual yes. contextuality. I don't know if that's a word, but like you also want to preach a sermon for your people where they are yes. and that God has given you. So that's a whole other thing too. But I think the point is, Pastors, just attribute, just say, hey, I got this from so-and-so or right. from this book or I got this story from so-and-so. I mean, I I don't necessarily think pastors need to get in the habit of like citing their sermons and posting that online. But you could if you wanted to be mm-hmm. super full of integrity. I think your people would really appreciate that. And then, you know, it's a temptation for all of us, especially I think if we've used someone else's point several times <laughs> that we sort of yes. usurp it as if it's ours. 100%. So I think we all just have to be mindful of being people of integrity and it's okay. Like, yes. you know, just own what you're doing. Um, so, okay, Ed Litton going forward, do you think that, like, this is it for him? No. From now on, he's writing no. his own sermons? Or you, yeah, what you- I think he's probably attributing. I think I think this has been a wake-up call. If you look at Twitter, this has been a wake-up call for a lot of pastors. Just to, Yeah. I don't think he was being at all. I don't think he did anything wrong. I actually don't think he did either. I, I just yeah. think this has been a wake-up call for all of us just to go, okay, I have to make sure to be ultra-vigilant yes. about just saying, hey, I got this here. I, this person I was listening yeah. to. I think just vigilance is, is probably the answer to this. Yeah, that's great. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about purity culture and something that happened recently with a Christian musician. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. Christian musician Matthew West, over the weekend, published a, I don't know if it was over the weekend, but it was recently he published a song that he had wrote satirically for his daughters called Modest is Hottest. Over the weekend, he actually pulled it off of everywhere that it was available online. It is not on Spotify, it is not on YouTube, it is nowhere to be found. But essentially, he wrote a song for his daughters that, in his mind, was really funny, trying to uh, get his daughter, I don't know, making a joke about how he he loves these girls. He's right. an overprotective dad. He wants them to be, you know, women that are not like Cardi B, but more like Jesus. Something like that <laughs> is one of the lines. And, of course, there was a lot of criticism because... Because um, there always is. Well, there always is. And people thought that he was promoting purity culture, which has had some 
critics in the past several years. Now, we were talking about this off the air. Brian and I were both sort of growing up in the heart of purity we culture. Did. I put on that, like, true love weights ring. Brian and, uh, Brian and I were both committed to our spouses. Yes. Before, you know. Uh, Every, I taught it in youth ministry <laughs> yeah. as a youth pastor. Like, hey, we're going to have the talk. Yeah, the purity talk. We, we did that, too. Yeah. Uh, the, the pushback of purity culture, of course, is that it tended to blame women or put the responsibility on young girls to be responsible for male sexuality. And so in a, in a few ways, it made young girls seem like evil temptresses. Um, it made young girls feel like they were the only ones responsible for male sexuality. And so the man is sort of, the, or the boy, I guess, is sort of this uncontrollable predator. And it's up to you, young girl, to dress modestly and to say no and to hold that line. So unfairly put mm-hmm. young girls in a terrible terrible position and in a lot of ways purity culture has paved the way for what we see now like a lot of toxic masculinity so that's the critique of purity culture i think brian and i were both talking about the positive side of purity culture is that the opposite is just sleep around with anybody and so there has to be a good balance Mm -hmm. like a healthy Mm -hmm. sexuality a holy sexuality that's mutual and isn't just about putting all the pressure on the girl but okay uh, Matthew West, Christian musician, wrote this song to, I don't know, I guess he was trying to be funny on Father's Day. One of the lyrics is, modest is hottest, the latest fashion tread. It's a little more Amish, a little less Kardashian. Claims that boys really love turtleneck and a sensible pair of slacks. And the video is his daughter's rolling his eyes right. at him because he's being this overprotective dad. But people were not happy about the song. I So, let me say a couple things. First, it got... A, he's a big deal, right, in the Christian world. Yep. So that's why people saw it. But B, it was also played uh, before one of the main sessions, I guess, at the Southern Baptist Convention last week uh, or two weeks ago. Uh, first of all, as a father of two daughters. Uh, yeah, like, let's I found hear this, about that. I found this funny. Okay. Like he's yeah. saying part of what it is, he he's very honest about like, this was just supposed to be a joke for right. my kids, for right. my daughters. Hence the the video of rolling his their eyes at him. Of going, hey, uh, one of the hard parts of being a dad with daughters and sons, but uh, but it's different with daughters, is is as they get older and boys start showing interest and they start showing it. It's natural, obviously. It's part of what yep. happens in life. But it's a weird deal as a dad, as I told my 17-year-old daughter. You feel protective daughter, of them. As I tell my 17-year-old daughter all the time, I still see you like a six-year-old. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that's all Matthew West was doing here. And he yeah. got, quite frankly, caught up in something we call Christian cancel culture. Right, right. People getting on soapboxes yeah. and deciding everything needs to be an issue. And so yeah. uh, do I think this is the biggest deal in the world? No, I don't. I get it. And, and Matthew West, fine. You felt like you needed to apologize. You felt like you needed to take it down. You're not going to find this thing anywhere on the internet right now. It's nowhere. We looked for it because we, we wanted to play it. you a clip. It does not exist and anymore. so I get it. My guess is he's surprised by it. Like, hey, I was just trying to yeah. poke some fun at myself. Like, that's the thing. The thing was poking fun at him. him. He was poking fun at himself. So that's one thing. The bigger question you do raise is, I do think the reason there's been kind of this, if you will, firestorm about it, is around this issue of, camp, of uh, purity culture. Right, right. And within the church. And like you said, we grew up in that generation where... Uh, this was talked about a lot. Yeah, it was. And, and, and so I think people are wrestling with how do you best talk about sexuality with teenagers, uh, with young adults yeah. that is God, God honoring. Right. 
uh, like you said, is also fair. Yes. Because it's interesting to hear the way you describe purity culture. Like you said, we probably watched the same videos in youth group growing <laughs> we up. We probably like, did. We lived half a country apart. Yeah. But we probably saw the same Josh McDowell, James Dobson right. videos. Right. And as a young as a boy, as a young man, I never looked at it and was like, whew, this is putting all the pressure on the women. Like, yeah. this is well, good. Well, that's because it's centered around you. And that's, that's <laughs> my point. Like, I, right. I, to hear you say that and others be like, oh, now looking back, I guess I, sure, I can see that. I never felt that way. Yeah. I felt like it was telling me, uh, treat women respectfully and don't have sex before you're married. Right, right. And my worry, like you touched on here, and I think that, 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 the church needs to wrestle with what's how is the messaging best done because now it's like the pendulum Aubrey has swung the other way where it feels like you know uh, there's no conversation even going around. Is it okay for Christians to live together before they're married? Right. There's no convert. There, there's like almost like a, now a badge of honor about. Um, or like now it's looked down upon when you talk about saving yourself until For marriage, you're married. Right. Uh, whereas before that was the conversation. Yeah. And so it, I, I do worry that if, if we swung the pendulum too far at one time, now we've kind of kicked it the other way. Yeah. And there's like almost this, you know, this Christian sexual revolution going on where you're like, oh, no, we're going to be different than what it was before. And you're like, no. That's not the point. Like right. maybe maybe we could talk about messaging here, Definitely. but in reality, how we actually act, I think I have my worries about yeah. where the church is. Yeah, going. I I hear what you're saying. We have I, I affirm we have to change the messaging. It cannot be all of it can't be about objectifying and sexualizing young girls, and it can't put all the pressure on girls so that when they grow up they feel like they're like evil temptresses if they're even around a man like that that is evil and has to change period done and done but i'm with you that that doesn't mean we we throw the baby out with the bathwater. we don't get rid of holy sexuality and god honoring sexuality and historical christianity has affirmed waiting until marriage now and and that was actually part of a radical thing of the new testament and the teaching of jesus like he entered a culture where men were doing whatever they wanted to to women whenever they wanted to gathering wives gathering concubines and jesus said whoa 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 marriage is for one man mm-hmm. one woman mm-hmm. submitting to one another and practicing a holy healthy sexuality in mutuality and so I think we sometimes forget that that's a radical teaching. Like Jesus was actually protecting men and women with that teaching. And so somehow we do have to go back to the value of honoring God with our bodies, of waiting until marriage, mm-hmm. of, um, uh, uh, and again, doing it in a way that's mutual, doing it in a way that's countercultural, and, um, and not, not just completely ignore the teachings of Jesus yeah, about this. Totally agree. And, um, but the church needs to. This is not the trend of culture right now. Not, not just church culture, but culture as a whole. And so, I do believe us as pastors, as parents, uh, as Christ followers, uh, this is going to be a harder message to to quote unquote sell, not an easier one. And so, I do think we need to go. Okay, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe the videos we watched in the mid '80s and early '90s were not helpful in the end, or right. maybe maybe they went too far. Maybe right. they. We obviously have the Joshua Harris book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Went and all too that far. With, yeah. But it doesn't mean that that the kind of the foundation that we were trying to get at there isn't still correct. Yeah, and that we need good. to like go, okay, let's not not let's just not knock the whole thing down. And I and I worry that there's many people uh you know, 
in in the words of, in the in the name of progress and who are going who are trying to throw all of it out and then I think that's really problematic going yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, this is an interesting conversation. One we'll keep having on the common good because there's a lot more to talk about here coming up. We're going to talk about what to do if you need a word from God. We'll talk about that next on the common good. AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. We are winding down on this Monday afternoon. Hopefully you're almost home. It's almost dinner time. Going to have something good. Do you know what you're having for dinner tonight, Brian? I absolutely do not. Well, I hope it's delicious. That it usually is, and it rarely depends on me as to Uh, what will happen. Yes, uh, yes. No, I do not, but I look forward. My my wife is a wonderful cook and uh, tends to make really yummy stuff, so I'm looking forward to it. I grill. I mean, come on. It's like the same thing, but you know. (laughs) That's always like the man dinners grilling, right? (laughs) Oh, that's good. Well, we were asking the question earlier, how, what do you do if you want to hear a word from God? You're like hungry to hear from God, or maybe you're praying through something and you're like, Lord, I need to hear from you. Or maybe you're going to someone else asking for a word from God. And you found this tweet by a pastor, preacher, next generation director named Shane Pruitt, who says this. If you want to hear a word from God, go to the word of God. That's right. <laughs> Pretty simple. So what did you think about that, Brian? Yeah, he says, if you're needing a word from God, and, and I think I, fa- I I really resonated with the simplicity of this because mm. I think there's great depth to this, right? Like we can always um, be like, man, I wish God would just talk to me. Mm. Like I have this decision to make or I'm struggling. I wish God would just talk to me. Uh, man, if he just came to me in a dream one night. Yeah. And God still does that. Absolutely. But, all the time. But if God were to come to me in a dream and be like, Brian, I want you to do this, then of course I would do it. I would wake up yeah. and I would go. If God would just, you know, if there would be a burning bush that I would walk out one day and God would say, here's what I have for you today. I would do that in a heartbeat. But we go, we, we start to go, but God's just silent in my life. Mm. And, and if he would just talk, God, why won't you talk to me? Why are you so silent? And I want to again acknowledge God still talks in dreams. All the time. God, God speaks, does give words to people God for other gives people. Words. And I yes. don't say that. I don't think even Shane Pruitt is, is talking against this. Yeah. I don't. I, I think that God gives words right in dreams and uh, God speaks audibly to people mm-hmm. in prayer. God does all this stuff. So this is not a view of like it's either the Bible or the miraculous. Right. But unfortunately, a lot of times when we're like, man, why is God so silent? We lose sight of the fact that we have the Bible, the, <laughs> right. word, the word of, of God. God. Yeah. And yet we ignore it, especially here in the West, because like your house is probably like mine. We've got more Bibles than we know what to do Definitely, with. Definitely. All kinds. We're si- there, there, there are all sorts of Bibles, yeah. kids' Bibles, this Bible, that yeah. Bible. And we ignore the fact that, you know what, God has spoken to us miraculously through his word. And so, yes, you could pray for miraculous. God, please give me a word. And God may, in fact, step in miraculously into your life and speak. But if he doesn't, that doesn't mean that God is silent in your life. But instead, he speaks through his word, through the Bible. And so, therefore, we have to be men and women of the Bible. We have to handle the Bible. We have to to, uh, just immerse ourselves in his word and know it. And and I do fear, I think he's getting at that a lot of times. Like, why is God so silent? And then the Bible kind of sits like sitting right next to you and actually, Oh, he's not silent. He's given you this entire word from his own breath and his own spirit. That's for us. Like that's his word to us. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we think about the burning bush moment with Moses, like, 
of course, a lot of miracles followed after the burning bush moment. But like that was like once in a 40 year experience. You know what I mean? Like Moses wasn't every single day having burning bush moments. And so that daily practice, Mm -hmm. I think, is so important. That habit. Our friend Jen Pollock Michelle has a book called A Habit Called Faith. That habit of being in God's word, knowing God's word and realizing like, God actually speaks to us through his word, Mm -hmm. literally what's on the page. And then the Holy Spirit highlights things or you see something you didn't see before. And all of a sudden you realize God is speaking to you. That's right. But we do. I think Brian's right. We have to be people of the word. So, Brian, how do you go about Bible study or or searching God's word in your daily life? Or or maybe how do you tell your people to get into God's word? Yeah, those are great questions. Let me really fast tell you. Somebody commented on his tweet. And they, oh, wrote, they, say? they wrote, if you want to hear the voice of God, read the word of God. If you want to hear God's voice audibly, read the word aloud. <laughs> that kind of made me laugh. <laughs> That's good. That did make me laugh. That's and, good. And so I do want to, again, before answering your question, I do want to say I go on walks in which I pray. Mm. And I literally ask God, God, I, 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 would you speak to me? Would you? Love you that. know what I mean? Like, yep. I, I, this again is don't hear from Aubrey and I going, God doesn't speak anymore. God yes. does, only speaks through his word. Right. God speaks miraculously. Yep. He speaks through community. He speaks through nature. Exactly. Yep. And so I, but also he speaks through his word. And so we have that in front of us. Uh, you know what, uh, Aubrey, for me, uh, I try to just kind of work through reading plans and just try to get, you know, never get to the point where I'm like, oh, I've read this already. And so I try to. Uh, read a little bit of New Testament, you know, maybe a psalm, yeah. work their way through the Old Testament, and and just kind of immerse myself in, in the Word. But where I used to get myself in trouble was it was about how much. It was like, mm. I've got to read this much. And that's okay, right? Like you're reading. Sure. Sometimes I've learned that reading just little amounts and yeah. just kind of, you know. Kind I, of meditating on it or sounds, dwelling on yes, it. Yes, it yeah. sounds somewhat subjective, but kind of reading till you hit a point where you go, oh, Kind of needed that, and just kind of yeah. sitting in it. Yeah, I think becomes important. You know, you ask it, what do we do? Uh, I don't have great stuff for our people mm-hmm. necessarily, but I, I try to start them. In, if they never read the Bible, try to start them in the Gospels. That's read great. the Jesus story. That's great. Read about who Jesus. Don't go start in in the Old Testament. Work your way. Yeah. You know, you're going to get into Leviticus, <laughs> yeah. and you're going to be. Like, I am. Out I don't get of it. This. Yep. Uh, but I try to start people in the in the in the New Testament, and also people just have grace on yourself. There if you, you go. If you don't. You know, it's God's not up there like, you know, when we were kids and you were in school and he's, oh, you failed your homework today, Mm -hmm. right? Like, just give yourself grace. And if you fall behind your reading plan, that's okay. And so I know you shared with us that you tend to read early in the morning, but how do you decide what to read? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think in the past I followed Bible plans. Like, this is what I love about this day and age. You get the Bible app. It kind of tells you what to read. You don't even have to think about it anymore. Um, there have been times when I don't have time to read in the morning. And so I listen to audio versions of scripture, which is kind of a nice way to do it if you're an audio learner. Um, right now, I'm sort of doing what you're doing, Brian. I'm just like getting up in the morning, mm-hmm. picking some scripture that I haven't read in a while and focusing on it again. I feel like I'm at a point where in my life I have wanted to dig really, really deep in scripture, know all the stories and Uh, You know, now studying the Bible for like 30 plus years, now I want to just sort of soak in good things about God's Mm -hmm. word and sort of return to my first love. And, um, you know, I think there are different seasons for Bible reading. I think the other thing is, again, 
Remember, we have a communal faith. Brian and I talk about this a lot. And it is so good to study God's word or to read God's word with other people. Because there are dry seasons where you're like, all right, Lord, I'm not getting anything out of this. And um, when you're with other people, they help illuminate things in scripture that you can learn that maybe you miss. So that's a beautiful aspect of learning in community. And then also, sometimes I think this is the other thing. Reading the Bible is not always about what we can get out of it. Now, certainly God does that because he's good and he's gracious. But sometimes you open up your word and you read it because it's an act of worship. Mm. It's an act of saying, Mm -hmm. okay, Lord, under your word, uh, I submit myself. Under who you are and what you've given me here, I I bow down. And so um, sometimes it's not about you, right? It's about like being humble before the Lord and and putting his word as like that main authority in your life. And understanding the Bible itself says that it is living and active. Like Mm, the Bible is living and active. It's not just some book that you're supposed to get through. God still speaks today in his word. And that's reason enough to go to it. There you go. All right. So read your Bible. That's the lesson from us. That's the big takeaway on this Monday afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Bye.